So welcome to class 10, to class 10 on Jude. We have covered a lot of ground so far. And tonight we get to a very pivotal point in Jude's letter. So let me have... Marcy reluctantly is going to come read. <laughs> so everyone, if you want to follow along in the, your Bible or in your notes, we're going to read through the entire letter of Jude. And hopefully by the end of tonight, you are again going to see why we do this every week. Why do we read through the entire letter every single week? It, it's very important to hear large chunks of Scripture read the way they were written to be read. So, Marcy. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ, a brother of James, to, to those who are called... Beloved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for the condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of God in sensuality, and deny our only master, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness upon the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing punish punishment of eternal fire. And yet, in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blasphemy the glorious ones. But when the archangel, archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of jo Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. They are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand distinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain in Balaam, Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feast. As they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all, to, on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. 
They are loud mouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must be remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last days there will be scoffers, following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in love of God, waiting for the mercy of the Lord Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. <coughs> to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now, and forever. Amen. Wonderful. Thank you, Marcy. Okay. So as we go into tonight, we're going to be covering a good chunk of scriptures here over the next two weeks. We'll be hitting verses 17 through 23 because they really go together. And here, like I said, we are going to see a distinct change in the letter. So starting in 14 or 17, it says this, but you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last day, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained with flesh. So in these next four verses, Jude is going to offer us several new descriptors of apostates. And then he is also going to begin to give us a practical plan of what to do with all the things that he has taught us within this lesson. And we see the shift in the very first words here of verse 17. It says, but you. This is a preposition linking the previous verses, but it also signifies a turning point in the letter. This marks a significant change in direction because up until now, Verse after verse after verse after verse, Jude has focused on them, the apostates. And I have a whole list here. I want you to see how many times he is focused on the them. In verse 4, certain people who crept in unnoticed, those who were written about long ago, they're ungodly people, those people who pervert the grace of God those who deny the Lord Jesus, those who are headed for condemnation. In gray, I put every time there was a judgment spoken, because remember, we covered this last week. God never judges without warning, never. He is 
always fair and he always warns. And these apostates have been warned over and over and over. Look how many times just in this one small letter. So they are headed for condemnation. The they is the people who do not believe, like the Israelites who wandered in the wilderness. They are the people who will be destroyed like they were. They are those who leave their proper positions God gave them, like the angels who sinned that we studied. They are the people who will face final judgment. Those who practice sexual immorality and perversion like the men of Sodom and Gomorrah. They are the ones awaiting punishment of eternal fire. These are the ones who rely on their dreams. This one is so important. And if you missed that lesson, please go back in your notes or on the tape and listen to it again. This is where so much error begins. Someone can have a dream or think they have a dream from God or a word from God and they allow it to supersede the word of God. And that is dangerous and it's wrong and it leads to all sorts of error. But these are people who rely on their dreams more than they rely on the word. These are people who defile the flesh. They're immoral. They're insubordinate. They reject authority. They're blasphemous. They're irreverent. They think more like an unreasoning animal. They operate by their senses rather than truth. These are the ones of who woe was spoken. They're the ones who walk in the way of Cain. And if you remember, he was envious and jealous. He wanted to go his own way rather than the way God had set out. These are the ones that make the same error as Balaam. They profit from this gift. They they are a profit for hire, pretty much. Um, These are people who rebel like Korah. These are those who will perish. Then we get into all the metaphors that Jesus gave, or Jude gave us. They're the hidden reefs. These are the ones that are dangerous because they're not out in the open. They're hidden. They are hidden and embedded within the church. They crept in, and now we see them hiding. They are those who feast without fear. They're selfish. They are in this for themselves. They have no fear of God, yet they are in the circle of God's people. They are shepherds feeding themselves. Waterless clouds. They promise things they can't deliver. They're fruitless trees. They produce no fruit because if you remember, they're actually dead. They're dead. They might look good on the outside, just like a tree can look good for quite a while on the outside, even though it's dead on the inside. They're wild waves of the sea, wandering stars, aimless, just going from one place to another, wreaking havoc. And like the waves of the sea, leaving nothing behind but muck and filth. 
They're reserved for utter, utter darkness. They are those who judgment was prophesied by Enoch. They're ungodly people who practice ungodliness. They are those who will be convicted. They're the grumblers, the malcontents, those that follow their sinful desires, loud mouth boasters showing favoritism for advantage. Those warned of by the apostles and Jesus. Here's one, and I have these in yellow, the ones we're going to talk about tonight. They are people who scoff, that follow their own ungodly passions, cause divisions. They're worldly and devoid of the spirit. Has Jude given us a pretty good list to be able to recognize that there are 25 verses in this whole letter? That's it. In all these descriptors, is it important that we recognize this? Absolutely. This is why he hits it over and over and over again. And tonight we're going to go into a little bit of why isn't it being recognized and why isn't something being done about it when the whole reason for Jude's letter at the very beginning was a call to arms. Do something about this. Contend for the faith. Contend for the faith that was given to you. Fight for the truth. So all these descriptors that he has given us about them, 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 them. And here in verse 17, we see a change from the them to the you, from those people to us, from the false believers to the true believers. Because if you remember, this letter is about the visible church. It's about apostasy, but it is to the true church, to the true believers. So apostasy, as we've talked about, it was rampant in Jude's day. This is nothing new. In fact, by the time Jude was talking about it, he is approaching this like it's, they're already here. We are surrounded by apostasy. And he was writing in 60 AD, 60 AD, and it was already happening. And over and over and over, the apostles have warned. And this is where Jude is going to take these warnings that we've heard before, and he's going to tell us what we need to do. What are the steps that we should be doing? So in these next few verses, he's going to give us a strategy, and it's really based on four things that we can be doing now. We need to remember, remain, rest, and reach out. And those four headings, I got to tell you, I took straight from John MacArthur Those words aren't in these verses other than remember, but the headings are alliterative. They help us to remember what we need to do. So this is our strategy of how do we contend for our faith in a world of apostasy? So remember, this is actually the second time Jude uses this word in the letter. The second time 
he tells us to remember the first time was in verse 5 when he said, remember these historical examples. And he gave us three examples of apostasy in history that we went over in verses 5 through 7. We had, again, the Israelites in the wilderness. We had the angels that sinned. And we had the men of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he said, remember these stories because this same thing that all these people were doing way back in history is still happening today. But we need to remember Judas talking about these things actually happening in the visible church. That that is the whole point of the letter. And this is why this letter is so shocking. Because again, we would expect things like that out there. Not in here. Not within the actual church. And hence the entire warning. So this word remember, and just as a reminder, if we take the word remember and remind in all of its various forms... Um, over 250 times in scripture. And if we combine that with phrases like do not forget, which is used over 60 times, we begin to understand the importance of remembering. Remember all throughout the word it is used. But here how Jude phrases it, he says you must remember. In Greek, this is homonesco. It means to recall to mind, to think again of something, but it is an imperative call here to remember. Remembering cannot be seen as optional. Remembering is necessary. So, multiple things um, that we are told all throughout Scripture to remember But here, Jude is going to get very specific in what he tells us that we need to keep bringing to the forefront of our mind. He tells us, you must remember the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the King James Version translates predictions as words. And to me, that's a much easier phrase to understand. Remember the words of the apostles of Jesus. That's what he's saying. But in order to really understand this, we've got to dig a little bit deeper because there are actually three words in Greek for our one English word, word. And these three words are graphe, Logos and Rhema. Graphe, Logos, and Rhema. So we're going to take a little bit of time and look into each one of these so that we can really understand. And when you take these three and you use it as you read anywhere in Scripture, anytime you see this word, look it up and it's going to give you a lot more understanding of what is actually being said. So the first Greek word is graphe, and it means the words on the page the written word, something written. Now, many times in English, in the Bible, it's translated as scripture, 
but not always. Sometimes it still is word. But this is what this is. This is the graphe. This is the words that were written on paper. We see this in many places. Matthew 21, 42 says, have you never read in the graphe, the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? In Luke 24, 27, and 45, he says, and we all know this one, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scripture, all the graphe, the things concerning himself. Then he opened their minds to understand the graphe. In John 5, 39, you search the graphe, the scripture, because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness to me. Do you see what's happening there? He's saying, you think these words on the page give you life. That's not what gives you life. It's who the words on this page points to. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all graphe, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. So graphe, written words on the page. So in verse 17, when Jude is saying, remember the words of the apostles, this is not what he's talking about. He is not using the word graphe. So the next word, the next Greek word is logos. And logos means a word uttered by a living voice, that which has been declared. It's the sayings of God, the precepts given by God. This is doctrine. In John 1, 1, it says, in the beginning was the word, the logos, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and the word, the logos, became flesh and dwelt among us. It's not the words on this page that became flesh. It, it's the sayings of God, the precepts of God, everything about God that became flesh to dwell among us. We didn't, when it says in the beginning was the word, we didn't have this at the beginning. This was written over thousands of years. This is not what was here from the beginning, but the Logos has always been, will always be. It's used in Matthew 7, 24, where it says, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings, the Logos of mine, and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on a rock. Acts 6, 7, Then the Logos of God spread 
And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient in the faith. This is another one where you can see a very clear differentiation here. If you'll get out in your binders, your church history timeline, because when that, at this time where it says the word of God spread, and we're talking in Acts, when the book of Acts was written, obviously on your timeline here, you see it beginning with Christ being crucified and resurrected. Not long after that, we have the day of Pentecost. So this is, of course, the birthday of the church. We have Paul's conversion during this time, and we have the beginning of the first written scriptures for the New Testament. James was the first written in 44. So when this is being said about the word of God being spread, was the Bible being spread? No, not yet. They had the Old Testament, of course, but they didn't have this. It was the logos that was being spread all throughout. Um, in 2 Timothy 2, 15, says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the logos of truth, the word of truth. Now, in this, we can see that the logos of God needs to be handled correctly. Of course, again, that doesn't mean this, even though I'm a full believer that we should handle even this correctly and show it much respect. But that's not what this is referring to. It's the logos. It's the precepts of God, the commands of God, everything really about him. That's, that's what needs to be handled correctly, the sayings of God. And in that verse, it can be implied can it be handled incorrectly? Absolutely, all the time. This is what apostates do. <laughs> this, is, this is one of the things they do. They mishandle the word of God. And we see all throughout scripture that the logos can actually be distorted Question nullified, spoken vainly of or carelessly of, and sometimes even peddled for profit. Do we see that happening today? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, in this verse, in 17, when Jude says, remember the words of the apostles, he is not using logos. It is not logos here. So the third word for word is rhema. And it sounds very similar to logos, but there's a big difference that we're going to dig into here. It says that which is or has been uttered by a living voice, a thing spoken, what has been foretold or an utterance. 
So again, it sounds like it, but what you're going to see when we read the scriptures where the word rhema is used is where logos is general, the commands, the precepts, the sayings of God. Rhema is specific. Rhema is very specific. In Matthew 4, 4, it says this, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word, every rhema that comes from the mouth of God. Matthew 26, 75, and Peter remembered the sayings of Jesus. Peter remembered the rhema of Jesus, where Jesus told him specifically before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. That was a specific word to him. Mark 14, 73, we see the same thing. A second time the rooster crowed. Then Peter called to his mind the word, the rhema that Jesus had said to him. In Luke 1, 36 through 37, this is an interesting verse because you don't see the word, word here. You don't see anything that makes you think of the word rhema. But if you read this passage in Greek, rhema is in there. And it says this, and behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren for nothing will be impossible with God. And I wrote it out for you there in Greek so that you can see where that word is. What you need to get here, that was a specific rhema word to a specific person. Let that sink in and think about that. Acts eleven sixteen, And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Again, very specific. Hebrews eleven three, By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the rhema of God. And you can think about some of those specific things that he said. So that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. And then in 1 Peter 1, 24b and 25, the grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord, the rhema of the Lord remains forever. And the word, rhema, is the good news that was preached to you. So again, in differentiating these two, logos is more specific in general unspecific in general, rhema is more specific. Now, we can also look at it this way, that when we read the word, meaning the scripture, when we read the graphe, then it, we use this to understand the logos, what God is saying to us through the actual words written on the page. Do you see how important that is? We read these words 
but there's much more that we have to understand that's understanding the logos. And then as we understand this, we can receive and get specific words, specific things for us applicable to you that could be different for me. It doesn't mean the logos changed, but it means that quickening of what we might need to do with it could be different. And I I use this example because it helps me to understand this. Let's say two of us in here are, are reading the word. So we're reading the scripture and it's love your neighbor as yourself. And maybe something gets quickened to you. Oh, you know, my neighbor, she's really struggling. I think I'm going to go over there and just say hi and maybe take her something. Okay, that's just a little quickening in your spirit to do something. To me, maybe I read the same thing, but to me it's like, oh, you're holding a grudge against your neighbor. You need to forgive. You need to repent. You need to, do, do you see how that works? This word is applicable to all of us every situation. There is not a situation in our life that this word is not applicable to. Logos is the general. Rhema can be specific. And here's what you got to get. They will always, always go together. If you think you get a rhema word, a specific word that doesn't line up with the Logos word, that is not from God. And can we think of things that are not from God? Absolutely. This is crucial to our understanding. We have got to read the actual scripture, the graphe, so that we gain understanding of the Logos And that helps us to discern the rhema. And what I'm going to tell you about false teachers, apostates, they might know the graphe. They might know it a lot. Oh, they quote it. They use it. They say it with no understanding of the logos And then they get these dreams, different things. They get these words, and it doesn't line up. So they might know graphe, but not the other. We have got to have understanding of all. They are all important. They are all crucial to understand and to know. And one thing that just really strikes me in days like today, the graphe could one day be taken from us. Lots of the world is not even able to have the codex of scripture. The logos and the rhema can never be taken from us. Never. So while we have this, while we have access to it, oh, we need to be learning the actual graphe, the scripture. So that if ever we don't have it, we still have what we need to survive. So 
This is the word. It is the rhema that is being used in this scripture. In my ESV, it is, again, the word prediction. Um, but if I look it up in Blue Letter Bible, it's rhema. Again, King James actually uses the word word. So verse 17, but you must remember, beloved, the rhema of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is telling us here that the apostles gave us specific teachings concerning apostasy and apostates that we need to remember. So what are some of these teachings? We've, we've been through several of them already. So some of them will be a review. Some of them will be new. Um, look first at 2 Corinthians 11. And in this passage, Paul is comparing himself and his methods to those of false teachers. He speaks of those who claim another Jesus. They offer a different spirit and they preach a different gospel. But because they are skilled speakers, this is so important, and they charge a lot of money for speaking, people are deceived by them. And this is how Paul finishes out this passage in verses 13 through 15. He says, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise them as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. At this time, Paul was being accused of being a false teacher. Paul. Because he didn't charge for what he was doing. So his methods were questioned. In the Greek culture, a teacher was judged really by how much money, how many fees they could bring in for what they were saying. And Paul was speaking for free. You all, it's almost always the innocent that get accused of the very thing the guilty are doing. (laughs) So here's the guilty false teachers accusing Paul of being a false teacher. So in your first connection tonight, and I have a lot of different verses for you. Again, some of them we've been through. Some of them will be new. But these are different places where we see specific things that the apostles themselves have told us about false teachers. The very first one we started with, and this was either in week one or week two, is in Acts 20, 29 through 30. And again, if you remember, this is Paul on his journey. He had just been to Ephesus. He has to leave Ephesus because of rioting, but he asks the elders of the Ephesian church to come meet with him so that he can say goodbye, bless them, and give them some instruction. And this is what he says to them. 
I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. Oh, this gives us so many clues into apostasy. Again, we see shepherds feeding themselves here. Shepherds that are not sparing the flock. They don't care about the flock. They're in it for what they can get from it. These are people who aren't trying to get followers of Christ, but followers of themselves. These are things, ladies, to be watching for, to be listening for, and to be aware of in who you listen to. Everyone you listen to really should be vetted. You really should. Just because they say they're Christian, these people did too. They were the shepherds in the church. We can't just blindly accept and follow anything. This is why Judah's writing this. There's a whole list of things that you can take somebody and look, okay, am I seeing this? Am I seeing this? Am I seeing this? Is this a person I should be listening to? Is that being judgmental? No, it's using sound judgment. (laughs) There's a big difference. There's a big difference We got to get out of this lie that we can't judge, we can't judge, we can't judge. The Bible tells us very clearly we are to judge. We are to judge fruit. We are to judge words. The only thing off limits really in judging is a person's heart because that we do not know that is in the hands of God. But there's a lot of things we can judge and we need to be judging we need to be using discernment in a day especially like today where it is rampant with apostasy so all these verses please take some time this week if you choose dig into each one of them and you'll see again very specific things that the apostles were telling us about false teachers. Um, And if we look again right here, if we look at all the writings of the apostles, and again, our first book written by James in AD 44, our last book, oh, that would be on the next page of your outline. Our last book, of course, would be the three books of John and Revelation. Revelation, as we learned, was written somewhere in the late 90s A.D. And all throughout these books, there's a few that I couldn't find something specific, but it's probably in there. It wasn't like I was reading every single thing. I was kind of flipping. But in many of the apostles' writing. There are warnings of false teachers, false apostles, and apostasy happening. So, very interesting 
If you look at where Jude writes his book, and this letter was written somewhere between 68 and 70 AD, about 25 years later, the book of Revelation was written. So tw- somewhere around 25 years between Jude and Revelation. And if you remember in the book of Revelation, Jesus himself wrote letters to his church. Seven letters. And we spent months and months, ladies, on these letters. And if you remember, out of the seven, does anybody remember how many nothing bad was said of them? Two out of seven letters from Jesus to his church, there was only two that he didn't have to correct and really get on for something. And it, it was dealing with things like this. When he wrote to Ephesus, he was saying, you lost your first love. You turned away. You abandoned your first love. Second letter was Smyrna. Didn't have anything to, bad to say about them. He's just like, keep on going, church. Keep on going. I know you're being persecuted, but it's okay. There is a great reward coming. The third letter, Pergamum. Do you remember Pergamum? <laughs> they married the world. They became so worldly, nobody could tell who was in the church and who was in the world. They all look the same. We should not look like the world. We should look very different. To the church of Thyatira, he got on them for corruption. They were so corrupt. Gross corruption had come into the church. False teaching, people following false teachers. In what is next, Sardis. In Sardis, the church of Sardis had gotten so bad, he called them dead. Sounds like the fruitless tree, twice dead, uprooted. He was calling the church of Sardis dead. They didn't have the spirit in them. Then he talked about Philadelphia. Again, nothing bad said of them. They were going out. They were being evangelistic. They were spreading the logos. They were spreading the word of God. And then the last church, the church of Laodicea, remember that one? Jesus isn't even in the church. He's outside of the church knocking, saying, hey, if you want to be with me, come out. Wow. 25 years from Jude, warning of apostasy, and then Jesus giving almost report cards to his church saying, this is what's happening. This is what's happening. And also, just as a reminder, did he also speak hope to every single one of those churches that was in a mess? Absolutely. He does not leave us without hope, you all. He doesn't leave us without the opportunity. He was warning them all, judgment's coming, judgment's coming. Wake up, change, get this right, get it turned back around. But all this to say, specific teachings, one after the other, all throughout the New Testament, 
all throughout the apostolic writing and Jesus himself warning of these things. So as an application this week, just think through this for yourselves. Are you familiar enough with the apostles' predictions and teachings on false teachers to recognize them when you see them? Do you feel you are able to discern truth from error when you hear it? Can you hear something from someone who claims to be a Christian, a Christian teacher, a Christian pastor, a Christian author? Can you hear it and say, okay, that aligns, that aligns with the word. Oh, something's wrong there. That is not right. This is what we have to be doing. This is what discernment is. It's taking anything that comes in and lining it up to this. Everything should be lined up to this. And if it doesn't, we need to get rid of it. And I've said that bef- this before, but that includes our own opinions. If those don't line up with this, we need to be getting rid of those as well. Everything needs to be lining up with this. So Jude says, remember what they said to you. And again, who he's talking about here in verse 18 is the apostles of Jesus Christ. We should practice remembering everything the apostles and the Lord said to us. Does that mean we should memorize scripture? Probably. (laughs) Probably. It's a great thing to do. Um, Remember what we've been taught. And this is the specific thing that Jude says that he is saying has been a specific teaching by the apostles. In the last days, there will be scoffers. They will be following their own ungodly passions. They're going to cause divisions. They're worldly people, and they are devoid of the Spirit. That's, that's the specific thing that Jude is telling us to remember here. So, if we look, Again, at this chart that we use a lot, we know that when the scripture says the last days, it's talking about the two advents of Christ. When he came the first time to seek and save, and when he is coming back to judge. This is the last days. When James wrote the very first book of the Old Testament, he was in the last days. We today thousands of years later almost, are in the last days. We're just in the later of the last days, the last of the last days. But he's saying during this time, during this time, and that word there, time, just like with the word word, um, in the Greek language there's three words for word. In the Greek language for time, there's actually two words so in the last days, it is eschatos chronos. 
Eschatos, we know that's where we get our word eschatology. It means just the study of last things. And then chronos is the word for time here. And it means chronological or sequential time. This is time that can be marked by a clock or by a calendar. That's what chronos is. So this is the word chronos in the last days. The sequentially last days before we get to something totally new. The millennial reign, new heavens, new earth, all of that. These are the chronos, the eskos chronos days. The other word for time in Greek is kairos, and this actually means an appointed time, an opportune time, or the right time. And if you ever hear somebody say something like, oh, that was my time. That was my time. They're not talking about a specific minute on the clock. They're talking about something that really special that happened. So this is the kairos time. So when we read a verse like Ephesians 5, 15 through 16, where it says, look carefully then how you walk not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the kairos because the days are evil. He's saying, make the best use of your opportunities. Make the best use of these um, opportune times that I give you. Can that relate with making good use of our chronos time? Absolutely. As humans, we can waste a whole lot of chronos and kairos. But in this particular verse, he's saying, oh, make the most of those times that I give you. Make the most of those special opportune times. So here, in the last days, there will be scoffers. This is impekites, and it means one who contemptuously ridicules or mocks someone or something. A contemptuous mocking of something. And remember, we're talking about in the church. Is there a mocking of the things of God in the church today? Not. Do, do you see that? And I don't mean our, um, our body here. I, I would say, ladies, we're kind of spoiled here. We, we are in a very good church where the word is preached and spoken. Not every church is like that. Do you realize that? Yeah. Um, that picture I showed you very early on in this class, do you remember this in the church? where there was literally a drag queen behind the pulpit preaching, that that's a scoffer right there. That is a mocker. That is making a mockery of God within the visible church. So in the last days, there will be scoffers. Um, We're going to take each of these things kind of like what we did last week, When we see what it says about apostates, 
we're also going to take it as a chance to contrast what should we be doing as true believers? Okay, there's going to be mockers and scoffers. Um, and Second Peter 3.3 3 also tells us, above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. The word of God is going to be questioned. It is going to be denied contemptuously. The ways of God will be questioned, ridiculed, and called irre irrelevant. Oh, we don't need that anymore. Oh, that's old. Think, things are different. We have, um, oh, what's the word? We have evolved. We're better than that. We don't need this. We're smarter today than they were back then. Um, for us, ladies, a true believer is accepting of and agreeable to the things of God in his word. All of it. All of it. We are to be accepting of it. We are to be agreeable to it. Could there be some things in it that we don't understand and we don't quite get why it is the way it is? Yes, there, there, there can be. But we can never allow ourselves to scoff or mock or think we know better. Um, we are to accept it and agree with it. And if there is something we just don't get or we can't understand, then we need to um, we need to rely on the scripture that says, don't lean on your own understanding. And always just acknowledge him. Acknowledge him in everything you don't get, you don't understand, and he will make your path straight. Second, in the last days, there will be scoffers, people following their own ungodly passions. In Greek, this is asebia, and it means to be impious, lacking a reverence for God. And this really explains why people scoff. Why do people scoff? Because they have evil desires that the word of God would prohibit them from acting upon. Right there. There will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. They'll make fun of the word of God. They'll deny it. Because if they accept it as true, their lives might need to change. They definitely will see they're accountable for their lives to someone. 2 Timothy 3, 12 through 13 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. If they don't get themselves off this track, it will continue and continue and continue and not just continue, grow from bad to worse. Second Peter 3.11 says, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, and if you remember, this is when Peter is telling us about the day of the Lord, the second coming of the Lord. What sort of people ought we to be in lives of holiness and godliness? 
So apostates following their own ungodly passions, a true believer has a passion for God that is demonstrated in their life through holy and godly living. Is there grace to cover every mistake and anything we could possibly do? Is that license to do whatever we want? Of course not. We are to be striving for holy, godly living. And in that striving, when we mess up, which we will, then we have grace and mercy to cover and go on. But our our passion should be God, and we demonstrate it in that way. Next, it says these people will cause divisions. This is apordorizo. It means to disjoin, cause separation, and separate from one another. Now, this one is going to be a little trickier to recognize than these others because it is oftentimes the very people that are trying to bring things to light, the very people that are saying, something's wrong here, this isn't right, they are the ones that get accused of causing division. Oh, don't listen to them. Oh, my gosh, they said somebody's name. Oh, gosh, they, they're talking about somebody. <sighs> Apostasy in the church needs to be recognized. It needs to be brought out. And the only way to stop a false teacher within the church is to recognize it and do something about it. That can't be done just sitting back saying, oh, I don't want to offend somebody. I don't want to make them mad at me. Um, We need to view apostasy the same way God views apostasy. And if you look back on all those gray highlights, that's pretty strong. That, that's a pretty strong view of apostasy. And why is the view so strong? Because it's damaging his church, his bride. How would your husband react if somebody was damaging you that that's that's how serious stuff like this is yet we really are living in a day where we don't talk about this much in our very politically correct culture we we don't bring things to light we don't talk about it we can ignore things and hope they go away do they hope do they really go away or do they grow from bad to worse it grows from bad to worse. It grows from bad to worse. This is why Jude is saying, urgently, contend. Contend for the faith that was given to you. Fight for the truth. A true believer longs for, seeks after, strives for unity in the body around the truth of God's word. There's... A misconception here that we should have unity at the cost of everything. Oh, we got to be unified. It's all about unity. It's all about unity. The important thing about unity is what 
we are unifying around the truth, God's word and the truth. If we unify around anything else, that, that, that is not what is important and that can actually be quite costly. We cannot unify around something that is not from God or of God. If, um, and this book is actually on a totally different subject, but this book right here, if you get it and only read the preface of it, it's quite fascinating because it talks about um, what is happening in the present day church, which is called ecumenicalism, which is, means bring everybody together, accept everybody, accept everything so that there's no division, there's no quarreling, there's no anything, just get everybody together and that we'll, we'll be okay. And in so doing, that is extremely dangerous. And I saw an example of this, and I've shared this before, I'll share it very quickly. In, um, in some of my trips to Haiti, where in Haiti, the Catholic Church allows the practice of voodoo. It means, because here's the difference, you all, between um, Protestants and Catholics. In Protestantism, being saved means coming into a relationship with Jesus Christ. In Catholicism, it is coming into the church. They believe it is the church that saves. As long as you're a member of the church, you're saved. Is that true? Of course not. Of course not. It's okay to be passionate. Um, So what is happening is they can go into a culture and allow them to practice whatever they want to practice as long as they become members of the church. And I was actually on an airplane coming back from Haiti one time with a priest who I just assumed we'd kind of be seeing the same, seeing things the same way in Haiti. And he started telling me this, and I just... That, that was one of the first times my eyes was opened to some of the things that are happening within, again, the visible church. So if you get this book or if you want to read mine, the first 10 pages is fascinating about what is happening here. So we have to really be careful about unity. Do we strive for unity in the church? Absolutely around Jesus Christ and around his word and around truth. So he says, oh, I'm sorry. It's called a woman who rides the beast. And actually the whole thing is honestly about the Catholic church. So kind of just know that going into it. Um, And again, I've said this before too. I believe There are saved believers who love Jesus within the Catholic Church. I believe that wholeheartedly. I do believe they're in a corrupt system and they're being deceived. And they can come out of it. They can come out of it. Um, Okay, so moving on. says these are worldly people. This is cosmikos and it means belonging to the world having the character of the present corrupt age. 
in this instance, this word worldly comes from the Greek word sarex, its original root, and it means the sensuous earthly nature of man apart from the divine influence and therefore prone to sin and opposition to God. So this is the kind of people, people who are prone to sin and opposed to God within the church, worldly people. Um, John 17, 4 through 19, I have given them your logos and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. We can see here, why does the world hate the true believer? Because we're so different. We're so different. We should be different. That, again, is what we saw in the letter to Pergamos. They had become so much like the world, you could not differentiate one from the other. We do not attract the world by being like the world. They get the world out there. We, we need to be different. We need to be different. We're called to be different. That's what holy means, set apart. We are people who are set apart. So a true believer may be in the world, but they should look different, act different, speak differently, and even think differently than the world. The next thing he says and the last thing he says here is these people are devoid of the spirit. That word devoid there is may, and it's a primary participle of qualified negation and expression of absolute, categorical, direct denial. I put all that in there because you got to see what a strong word that is. These people are devoid of the spirit. That means they're not true believers. Sometimes people want to view an apostate and say, oh, they're, they're, they're okay. They're a believer. They've just messed up. We've talked about that. We can't get into this again. You've got to go back and listen. There's a big difference between a teacher, a preacher, anybody who makes a mistake, which everyone will, and a person who is purposely perpetuating error. And if you are a person who can purposely perpetuate error within the church, it's because you're devoid of the spirit. If you had the spirit in you, you wouldn't be able to do that. It would absolutely wreck you. These aren't believers. They're in the church acting like it, but they are not. They are devoid of the spirit. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? So again, this is showing us um, the true state of these believers or these people. At salvation, 
we receive the infilling of the Holy Spirit. We get that at salvation and being infilled with the Holy Spirit and devoid of the Spirit is absolutely incompatible. It cannot happen. You can't have the Holy Spirit in you and be devoid of the Spirit. So he is making this very clear who these people are. And we, of course, know that a true believer is to be indwelt with the Holy Spirit. So in summary, if we kind of reworded this, it would say, in the last days, there will be unsaved worldly people in the visible church scoffing and following their own sinful desires who cause division within the true church. That's what this passage is saying. So when we see this happening, we shouldn't be surprised by it because it's been foretold by Jesus and his apostles. So in this first instruction of how to handle this, when he's saying we've got to remember this, we've got to remember this, remember these teachings. Because if we don't, three things, probably more, but three that I can think of can happen. Number one, and I'm in the bullet points here, if we don't remember these teachings and keep them in front of us, we won't be able to recognize apostasy when we see it, and then we can be deceived by it. Over and over and over, we've stated, can a true believer be an apostate? No. No, absolutely not. They're devoid of the Spirit. We are not. Can a true believer fall into deception because of the teaching of an apostate? Absolutely horrific damage is done because of that. Absolutely horrific damage. So remember what he's saying to us. Remember all these characteristics he's giving us so we can recognize it, so we can see it when it's happening. The second reason we need to remember we can have fear or anxiety about it. We can be thinking things like, why is this happening? Has God lost control? How is everything? How how'd the church get like this? What's going on? We shouldn't have fear or anxiety about it. It shouldn't surprise us because it's been prophesied. He said this is what it's going to be like shouldn't shock us. It should disturb us. It should make us want to do something about it. It should make us urgent to do something about it, but it shouldn't make us fear. It shouldn't make us fear. We're told this is what's going to happen. This is what the last days are going to look like. And then thirdly, if we don't remember these specific things, we won't have a strategy for what to do And then we won't end up doing anything. And that that is one of the things that has happened. Things aren't being done about this. So, we are at the end of time. I don't know how that went so fast. But next week, we're going to pick it up here because there's some important things for us to see about why this is happening 
and what we can do about it. But for not for tonight, let's just leave with this. If he is telling us to remember these specific things, and in the Bible all throughout, beginning to end, we're being told, remember, remember, remember. And what we need to constantly be brought to our mind is the word of God. We need to realize that we need to be women who are learning the word of God daily, consistently. This should be consuming more of our brain power than anything else. And I know that is hard in a day where we are all very busy. We have a million things to do. And Jesus is saying, this is first. Put this first. This needs to be first. When you put this first, all those other things can fall in line. But this has to be first and foremost. We won't survive. If things are growing bad from bad to worse, we're not going to survive without this. And, oh, we can do so much more than survive with it. We have got to be women of the word. We've got to be women teaching our children of the word. We have to be women who are speaking truth wherever we are, whatever our job is, in our neighborhoods, in our circles. Every one of us has access to people nobody else in this room has access to. We need to be people who know this so we are speaking it. And the only way things are going to be brought to our mind, the only way we can remember anything is if we learn it in the first place. And next week, we'll pick it up there to see the importance of knowing both the gra- or all the graphe, the logos, and the rhema. Let me pray, and then I believe Kevin is going to come in and give us an announcement. Father God, we come to you in Jesus' name. Lord, again, we just thank you for this night and this opportunity to read your word. God, I pray that you help each one of us, Lord, in the hearing of a very difficult topic, that you help us to understand, that you open our eyes Lord, we want to be women who discern. We want to be women who rightly divide the word of truth. We want to know it. We want to understand it. We want to speak it correctly for our benefit and for others. We want to be women of the truth. So God, I pray Tonight, tomorrow, every day from here out, Lord, just prompt us. If there's any of us in the room that have a difficult time because of our lives, reading your word, God, I just pray for a miracle. Lord, I pray that you multiply the time of the women in this room so that they have time to give to you. And Lord, I pray that when they do, they will see it multiplied back to themselves. I thank you for that, Lord. I thank you for the women in this room. Thank you for bringing them here tonight. Bring them, take them home safely. And Lord, until we meet again, may we be women in our thoughts, in our actions, and in our words, people who glorify you. 
in the precious and powerful name of Jesus. Amen.